Let's open our Bibles now together to Romans chapter 9 as we continue on in this glorious epistle that we have been given. Romans chapter 9, we're picking up where we left off two weeks ago. Last week was Reformation Sunday. We did not want to lose our Protestant credentials by skipping over it. Thanks, for Aaron, for that one. One appreciative laugh. Everyone else is used to me, and I'm not funny anymore. <laughs> We're picking up where we left off. We, we, we looked at verses 1 through 5 in Romans 9 two weeks ago, and we're picking up now in verse 6, continuing on in this glorious chapter. And so hear the word of the Lord now from Romans chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you for this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us, your people, that through your spirit, by your word, we hear the voice of our God. We come to know you. We are transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And I pray, God, that by your spirit, through your word this morning, you would accomplish that which only you can do, calling those which are dead and bound in sin to life, transforming your people into the likeness of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray, Lord, that you'd have your way in all that is done, all that is said. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, where, where is it that we get our theology from? Where, where is it that we get our beliefs and our views about God? Many people get these ideas, their theology, their understanding of God, their beliefs of who God is and how God works, of what faith is all about and how salvation is accomplished. They get their ideas from somewhere other than Scripture. They don't start with the Word of God. They start with philosophy. They start with human reason. They start with cultural understandings of morality. They start with their feelings. What does my gut tell me is right and wrong? I can remember as a young man, a young man to my shame who was preaching, because I started preaching too young as a new convert, and I just generally felt, as a part of the charismatic movement, I did not need doctrine or theology. I had the Holy Spirit, and I would instinctively know right from wrong. That, by the way, is a person you should walk right out on his sermon if he ever says anything like that to you, because he's going to say something heretical. The problem is when, when, when we do this, when people do this, begin with something other than God's Word, it inevitably leads to beliefs that are in direct contradiction to the teachings of Scripture. Our gut will not lead us in the right direction. It will not lead us to truth. What does Scripture say about our heart? It's deceitful. 
Now, I know that most of you agree with what I'm saying. You hear me say that, and you say, yes, the the truth about God, the truth about salvation, we must begin with the Word of God. If we are to know the truth, we must build our theology on the foundation of Scripture alone. Any other foundation will lead us astray. When I say this, you're saying yes and amen. So why take the time to begin by saying this to us? I said it because we're about to study a description of God that runs counter to the heart and the logic and the reason of mankind. We're about to study who God is with our brother, the Apostle Paul, in terms that might make us uncomfortable, that might even upset us. But but these things we're going to be looking at this morning and in the weeks to come, written by our brother Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, are good things, glorious things, things that when we embrace them will make our hearts soar. The incredible truths that we have before us are meant for our joy. They are revealed to us for our joy. And so as we look at Romans chapter 9, the great theme of Romans 9 is the sovereignty of God. That one word could sum it up, sovereignty. That's what it's all about. Obviously, the nation of Israel is in view. Paul's going to talk a lot about Israel. But most of the subject matter has to do with the sovereignty of God. That's how Paul's going to frame this discussion. And now most of us in this room would say yes and amen to the sovereignty of God. If this is your church, if you're a member here, then you must feel that way or else you'd never want to come back here because we talk about it all the time. We'd say we believe in the sovereignty of God. So let me get more specific. The theme of Romans 9 is the sovereignty of God in election. It's the sovereign choosing of God of a people for himself, not based on their merit, not based on something he foresees in them, but only because of his good pleasure. That's what Romans 9 is talking to us about. And so before we get into what Paul has to say about that here, we need to remind ourselves of what we saw two weeks ago, of Paul's heart of compassion. It's very important for us to remember that, that this teaching comes directly out of a heart of great love and compassion. And we need to remember it for a couple of reasons. One is, as convinced as Paul is in the sovereignty of God and salvation, you're never going to meet somebody who's more convinced of it than Paul more convinced that salvation occurs because God chooses people for himself, not based on anything in them, but based on his own good pleasure. As convinced as Paul is about that, there's no one who's more diligent in working for conversion than Paul is. His belief in that, his his complete dependence on that did not stop him from working hard to see souls saved, to see people won to Christ. He was intentional about working hard to see salvation come to the Jews, for instance. We, we know that. We know his, he refers to this pattern in Romans. We see it also uh, in the book of Acts. Luke tells us about it, that Paul's pattern when he goes to a city is to go to the, the Jew first and then the Greek, even though he's known as the apostle to the Gentiles. He was always going to the synagogues first. He loved Israel. He worked hard to see the conversion of his people And so Paul believes in God's absolute sovereignty in salvation, and he works hard to see people converted. We need to keep that in mind as we study these doctrines. Secondly, it's important to remember Paul's heart 
for Israel because through the rest of this chapter, he is going to say some things that are very hard to swallow. They're not hard to understand, as we said two weeks ago. It's not difficult to understand. It's not unclear. It's just difficult for the natural mind of man to accept what it is that Paul is saying. We all have very skilled internal lawyers who want to argue every point that Paul makes. In fact, as we go on in the chapter, we'll see that Paul has anticipated our arguments and answers them in this chapter. So we we need to remember that, that these difficult truths, these truths that are difficult for the natural man to accept, are taught in the context of a humble heart of great compassion. These are not cold truths. These are not unfeeling truths. So the question is, as Paul wrestles with this, why? That's the looming question over all of this. Why is it that so many wonderful people throughout history, right now in the world and throughout all of history, there are incredibly intelligent people, far smarter than you and I, incredibly talented and wonderful, amazing people, We could even, if we define it correctly, use the word good people in the world today and throughout all of history that have never heard the gospel, have never heard it, will go their entire lives without ever hearing it. They've never seen a Bible. They've never heard the name Jesus. And then there are many who have heard the gospel. Perhaps they've even heard it a lot, and some of them embrace it, and some of them reject it. And the question in all of this, looming over all of it, is why? Why is that? Why would it be that so many wonderful people go their whole lives without hearing the gospel? How could God allow that to happen? If, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the power of God for salvation, and salvation cannot occur from hearing and believing the gospel, how could God possibly allow so many people to live their whole lives and never hear it even once? How could that be? And then there are so many who hear the gospel and embrace it. They trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They submit their lives to him and they love him. But then there are so many others who have had that same opportunity. They've heard the same gospel preached. They've they've grown up in the same environments. Time and time again, they have rejected the gospel. Even in Bible-believing, truth-preaching, faithful churches, there are some who are true believers who trust in the Lord Jesus, who love him with all their heart, who worship him, who submit their lives before him, and there are others who are just going through the motions. Their lives don't bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They give no evidence with their life that they've ever tasted the saving grace of God. Why is that? Why do some with the same opportunities reject the gospel while others embrace the gospel and are saved? What is it that makes the difference? What's the difference between you and your unsaved loved one who had all the same opportunities you had? Are you just smarter than them? Just inherently a better person than them? Well, Paul's going to answer these questions for us. That's the question Paul is addressing here. He's going to answer it by asking another question first. Why do some embrace God and others reject him? Why have some never even had the chance to hear? To answer that question, Paul tackles a Another difficult question. And it has to do with Israel. The question is basically, has God's word of promise to Israel failed? Has his promise 
failed. There, there's this specific historical situation that leads to this question. If, if you remember from verses 1 through 5, two weeks ago, Paul is addressing his great sorrow over the fact that the people of Israel have largely rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Jesus had come to them. They had rejected him. He says his heart is broken over it. He mourns over his people. He says even, I wish I could take their punishment. I wish I could be cut off and accursed if it meant that, that, that this group of people would come to know and embrace Jesus as the Messiah. Well, Paul's not the only New Testament writer who's aware of this problem. God has made all kinds of promises to Israel. Israel has rejected their Messiah. How can these two things coexist and God still be faithful? In, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in the prologue, starting in verse 9, John writes this, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So Jesus made the world, came into the world, and the world didn't know him. What a statement that is. The world doesn't recognize him. The world doesn't embrace him. The world doesn't love him. The world doesn't reverence him. But it's even worse than that. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. In other words, Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, was in his flesh an Israelite. In fact, a son of David, and yet the other Israelites turned their back on him. They rejected him. They hated their own Messiah. And so there is this serious tension going on. Paul knows it. John knows it. These glorious promises have been made to Israel, made to Abraham, made to Isaac, made to Jacob and Joseph and Moses and David, made through the prophets like Jeremiah. And yet when the Messiah comes, the people of Israel largely, mostly reject him. And so Paul begins to address this problem, this question. Since this is the case, does that mean God's promises had failed? God made these eternal promises. Does it mean that they had failed? And Paul makes his answer clear right from the start. He doesn't want us to be confused. The answer to that question is a resounding no. The promises of God have not failed. Verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. But it's going to take more than just that statement to clear all this up, to, to answer this problem. It takes more than just saying, no, of course not. The Word of God hasn't failed. How do you reconcile God's covenant promises to Israel with Israel's unbelief? How can this be? How can this have happened? How can God have made these promises to Israel, these, these eternal, irrevocable promises, and Israel somehow was able to reject them? Does it mean God's word has failed? Does it mean these promises weren't true? And again, Paul's answer is an emphatic no. Not one single promise of God has ever failed, will ever fail, could ever fail. This question then leads Paul to talk to us about God's sovereignty in salvation. That's the answer to the problem. God's sovereignty in salvation. This historical question of what happened to Israel leads Paul to talk about election about the sovereignty and the mercy of God in salvation. And so let's look at Paul's answer, starting in verse 6. That was the introduction to the sermon. Addie, that was for you. Addie said they were reading a book, and it had, what, a super long introduction. And she's like, that sounds like Jason's sermons. 
Fair enough. Look at verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. God's promises have not failed. Why not? Paul says, because not all of Israel is Israel. Well, that clears it up. That's easy enough. What does that mean? Well, he's going to say it for us three different ways, actually, to make sure we don't miss it. Look again at verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed. First, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Verse 7, and not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. That's the second one. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but in the third one, the children of promise are counted as offspring. This is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. What is Paul saying with all of this? What Paul's showing us is that this is how it's always worked. God hasn't changed the plan of operation. God has always been at work in Israel. He has been fulfilling his covenant promises to an elect subset of the people of Israel, to to a certain people, a specific people. God's promises to Israel have always been for the remnant. They've always been for true Israel is going to be the language that the New Testament uses, the believing people of God. And what Paul is showing us by using these three historical examples is it's always been this way. This is not a new program. This is not a new way that God is dealing with people. The plan hasn't changed. It's always been this way. We don't have time to just walk through the list, but, but how, how did Abraham become the father of, of all of Israel, of all these people? He was just some wandering pagan, and God pointed at him and said, you, you're mine, and just made promises to him, irrevocable promises, right? The story of Abraham doesn't go, Abraham wised up. He did the right thing instead of the wrong thing. He prayed the right prayers. No, God points at him and says, you belong to me now. It was election. Paul brings up, we can go through each one of these, but Paul is showing us this is how it has always gone. So so there is this external community of Israel, this visible community, many of whom simply go through the motions. They are part of Israel ethnically, physically. They are literal physical descendants, but they're not trusting in the God of Israel. And Paul says that's not true Israel. But within this external visible community, there is true Israel, those who are truly trusting in the living God. The remnant, those who have rested on, believed in his promises and are experiencing the blessing of his salvation. Paul has already told us about this in Romans way back in chapter 2, which we were at like nine months ago, something like that. Chapter 2, verse 28, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. In other words, how is one part of this true Israel that Paul's talking about? It's not a matter of being born, it's a matter of being born again. It's not a matter of our lineage, it's a matter of faith and God's choosing. Being, Being born a physical Israelite accomplishes nothing without a changed heart, nothing at all. The promises of God are fulfilled in those who embrace those promises. And so he says then in verse 7, secondly, that 
Not all physical descendants of Abraham are the true children of Abraham. It's the same thing he just said. Not all who are in Israel are true Israel. Jesus said this same thing in John chapter 8. If you want to flip over there, keep your finger here in in Romans. We'll be back. John chapter 8. Jesus is speaking here to the Pharisees, or at the very least, their followers. He's been talking about what it means to be a true disciple, to be a true follower of him, really what it means to be true Israel. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And when they hear what he has to say, they're offended by it, as are many today. So Jesus responds to them, and looking at verse 33, we'll skip around a little bit here instead of reading this whole section, but it says, they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So what's their answer to Jesus' statements about what it means to be truly a disciple, truly one of God's own, and they point to their lineage. We're related to Abraham. We're Israel. We're Jews. Verse 37, Jesus says, I know you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. You do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. Well, of course, they don't appreciate that. So they immediately lash out at him. They know his history. They know the story of his birth. It's notorious. He says this in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. What does Jesus say to this group of people? Physical descendants of Abraham. He says, you might be physically descended from Abraham, but your father is the devil. Abraham isn't really your father. That's exactly what Paul's doing here in Romans 9. That's that's the kind of thinking Paul is following. Not all Israel is true Israel. Not all descendants are Abraham's children. Not all are receiving these promises from God, and that is not a failure on God's part. That was the plan from the start. Again, true Israelites are not born, they're born again. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Not confusing language, is it? Who are Abraham's offspring? Those who belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And then he he gives us this third image, not all are children of the promise. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul draws out... uh, a contrast of those who are descended from Sarah and her son Isaac and those who are descended from Hagar and her son Ishmael. And he says there, as he does here, that Isaac is the child of promise, not Ishmael, even though Ishmael came first. And Paul says to the believers in Galatians chapter 4, verse 28, you are the sons of promise, just like Isaac. So so when Paul is discussing who true Israel is, he looks at the believer and he says, believer, it's you. 
It's you. This has been God's plan from the start, and it's you, your true Israel. There's a difference. There's a, there's a huge difference between Isaac and Ishmael. There is a huge difference, even though they are both Abraham's offspring. Paul draws that out in Galatians. He draws it out here in Romans, and so Paul makes it clear it's more than physical descent. They are both Abraham's sons, but there is a world of difference between Isaac and Ishmael. One are chosen, one is not. Not all Israel is Israel. There, there, there may be great promises given to God's people, but the kingdom of God is not inherited by physical lineage. Now the, now, the Jewish leaders might argue with Paul on this point. He talks about Isaac and Ishmael, and they say, yeah, no kidding. Isaac was the promised child. Ishmael was the result of sin, right? God had made this promise to, to Abraham and Sarah, who were both super old, impossible for them to have kids. They doubted God, and so they hatched this plan where he would go into the servant girl, Hagar, and she could fulfill this promise from God for them, and the whole thing, of course, fell apart. And so they wouldn't have a problem with that. Yeah, even though Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn son, Isaac was clearly the only son of Abraham and Sarah. That's who the promise was to. So it's not a difficult choice for God to choose Isaac over Ishmael. They would, they would agree with that. Well, Paul wants to remove any wiggle room here, any ability for us to do that kind of gymnastics in our mind, because it's what our natural minds want to do. We want to find a way for God not to be saying what he's saying here. So Paul gives us another example of God's sovereignty. He's going to remove any chance for argument from us. He may offend our minds, but he's going to make it clear why some believe and why some don't. We might expect him to say something about faith now. Why do some believe and some don't? Well, some have more faith than others. We might expect him to say something about morality. Some are better people than other people are. Some people choose what's right and others don't. That's not what he says. Look at verse 10. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So it's one thing for God to elect Isaac over Ishmael, right? The offspring of Sarah over the offspring of Hagar. But Jacob and Esau are twins with the same mom and dad. But God chooses one of them and not the other one. There's, there's no getting around it. You cannot get around that. God chose Jacob and did not choose Esau. God makes the choice. And this is significant for a couple reasons. Number one, God chose the second born of the twins. If there's, ever, if there's any differentiating between these two twins, then it's Esau first, Jacob second. Because Esau was born first, not Jacob. God went against the normal standard of blessing the firstborn here on purpose. Second, the choice was made when? What does verse 11 say about when the choice was made? Before they were born. It's not based on anything about them. And now people at this point go, but God looks through the corridor of time 
And he sees the choices they'll make and the things that they'll do, and then he retroactively chooses them based on that. Paul wants to make sure we can't get away with that kind of nonsense. Because he says the choice was made what? Before they were born, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Paul wants to make it very clear. This is not based on anything about them. It's not based on something they had done. They couldn't do anything. They weren't born. And it's not based on something they would do. In fact, if it was based on something, if that's really how it worked, God looks through the corridor of time, sees what you're going to do, and retroactively elects you based on that, that means that God has learned something from your actions. That is called a heresy. It's heretical to suggest that God would learn anything. God knows everything. He's not dependent on your actions. He's not dependent on your choices. And Paul makes it clear, they had done nothing good or bad, and it wasn't because of any work that was going to follow. It wasn't because God looked into the future and knew what we would do. It specifically makes sure that we know that, though they were not yet born. Though they had done nothing, either good or bad. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who called, had nothing to do with their merit. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, had nothing to do with their individual merit. It was a choice that God made. Phil Riken says, notice God's reason for choosing Jacob in verse 11. It was in order that God's purpose and election might stand. God chose Jacob in order to teach the mystery of election, that God is sovereign in dispensing his mercy. Even before birth, he predestines those who will receive his saving grace, and Jacob was chosen for the very purpose of demonstrating that God's grace is God's choice. Paul answers in verse 11 over and over, emphasize God three times, God's choice, God's purpose, God's calling. That is Paul's answer. If that's not a strong enough statement, verse 13 hits us like a punch in the gut. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Who's the I? It's not Paul. It's God. In other words, I have chosen Jacob, I have rejected Esau. This happened before they were born. This happened not because of anything about them. Nothing they had done as pre-born children, nothing they would do once they were born, nothing good, nothing bad about them, but purely, Paul says, because of God's purpose in election. In other words, Paul's answer to this dilemma is, look, God gets to choose. God gets to choose who he has grace on. God gets to choose who he pours his mercy out on. God gets to choose who his people are. Let me ask you this question. Does that bother you? Does it offend you? Does it make you mad? Does, do you instinctively recoil from that? Is there something in you like, oh no? What, what are we saying? First of all, I would just suggest to you, husbands, if you got to choose your own bride, perhaps you could extend that same courtesy to God. Not be mad at him if he wants to. That's not in my notes. It's just free for you this morning. Know this, 
if you recoil from this. You are not recoiling from the words of man. This isn't my theology. This isn't Paul's theology. It is the word of God, infallible, pure, glorious, beautiful, good. We don't get to tamper with or reject the word of God just because it offends our human sensitivities. Paul isn't unclear in what he's saying here. There's no honest reading of this that says Paul's being unclear. It's absolutely, indisputably clear what Paul is saying. It's just that our natural minds hate it. We want to cry out, that's not fair. Perhaps right now in your heart this morning you've been saying, that is just not fair and no God I worship would be unfair like that. By the way, the expression, the God I worship would never, is almost always followed by something unbiblical. That's another free tip for you. God knows, though, that that's our response. God knows that our heart wants to cry that out. This is not fair. This cannot be right. And Paul's going to address that in this chapter. That's not a new argument. That's the argument that they had, too. Paul's going to address that. But let me just say this to us in closing. Friend, if you are resisting this particular teaching of Paul, if you are resisting this truth from the Word of God, you are missing out on a very precious and comforting truth that God has given for your encouragement, for your joy, for your happiness, for your peace, for your confidence, for your humility, for your sanctification. A woman came once to Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher from the 1800s. He preached on this passage and the woman said, I just don't understand, Mr. Spurgeon. How could God say he hated Esau? And Spurgeon looked at her and said, Madam, I find it much more difficult to figure out how he could love Jacob. We have this notion that we're deserving of something from God. That we deserve his grace, that we deserve his mercy, and that's why it makes us mad when we hear Paul suggest that he might give it to some and not to others, not based on anything about them. Because we think everybody, we think Esau deserves it just as much as Jacob, but the truth is neither one deserved it one ounce. They deserved just the opposite. Jacob didn't deserve God's mercy. He deserved God's wrath. So the doctrine of election is intended for our reassurance. It's it's intended by God to encourage us. We, We need to be reminded of God's providence and power often. And election is irrefutable proof of both. Election has such amazing positive implications. Consider, Christian, what it means for you. If what Paul's saying here is true, consider what that means for you. You are here in this place and in this time by God's appointment. It's not an accident that you are where you are in your life. That struggle you're going through, a difficult time, that trial, that didn't just slip through God's fingers. You're not just in this place that you're in in your life, whether things are going well or things are going poorly for you and God is somehow far off. No, there's purpose in it. God has appointed you for this place and time. It means that you were, you were made with strengths and weaknesses to glorify God's grace and sufficiency. Everything about you is for that purpose. Your strengths are for that purpose. Your weaknesses are for that purpose. 
You are even now under God's determined plan of training and pruning and conforming you to the image of Christ. That's what's happening with every event in your life. The events and circumstances you experience in this life are all, every single one of them, according to his perfect timing and wise purposes. Where do you get more comfort than that? It doesn't mean everything that happens to you is good. It means, as Paul told us in this previous chapter, in chapter 8, it just means that all things are working together for good. It doesn't mean they're good. There's a lot of terrible, terrible things. But here's what this doctrine reminds us. Nothing is meaningless. Nothing is wasted. That that thing that has happened in your life that hurts you more than anything else and you wonder where could God possibly be in that and you really don't have an answer, as you stand on the truth from God's word, you can know whatever it is, though I don't see it, there's meaning in it. There's purpose in it. Oh, isn't that better? Isn't that better than the fatalistic God just had and his hands were tied? Oh no, brother and sister, that is not the God we worship. All of these things are true no matter what it is that you are facing, no matter what it is that you have faced, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter where you have been, these things are true. And this doctrine screams it to us. Raymond Edmond says this, God brought you here. It's by his will that you are in this place. In fact, in this fact, rest. He will keep you here in his love. He will give you the grace to behave as his child. He will make the trials lesson which he intends for you to learn. He will work in you the grace he means to bestow. And in his good time, he will bring you out again. How and when, he alone knows. It's another way of saying God is sovereign. Whatever it is that you are going through, whatever it is he means you to learn, you're going to learn it. Whatever benefit he means for you from what you're walking through, you're going to have that benefit, and he will see you through. This is the best news in the world. The sovereignty of God is the best news in the entire world, and I promise you it will change your Tuesday afternoon. It will change the worst moments in your life. And it will cause you to worship him more, to rejoice in him more, and he will produce in us humility. Far, far be it from us. There are those who accuse that this that Paul is teaching will lead to arrogance. That it would lead to this judgmental we're in and they're out kind of thinking, oh, just the opposite. Anyone who would think that way has not understood these truths that Paul is teaching. It will produce in us humility, thankfulness, and worship. And as our brother Paul, it will produce in us passion to see the lost one to Christ. It will produce a gospel zeal in us because as, as the Lord comforted Paul, how does Paul know this so well? Well, we can read the book of Acts and, and know as Paul is persecuted and they try to kill him in a city and God says, go back into that city because there are many there who will believe. It's this doctrine of election that drove Paul to go in. Yeah, they tried to kill me, but God's got people there who are going to respond to the gospel, and I know it for sure. That's what this does for us. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Lord, these truths are difficult for the natural mind.
They're truths we would frankly skip over if we weren't just working our way verse by verse through this book because they're scary for some of us. But Lord, I I do know that as we understand them, they are life-giving, joy-producing, hope-inspiring truths. And I pray that they would be that for us. I pray, Lord, that that we would not recoil from these truths, that we would run to our God as he has revealed himself in Scripture, that we would reject anything, Lord, that is based on some kind of human reason that stands in contradiction to the clear teaching of your word. Instead, we would say, whatever is true about God, I want to believe that, and I want to know that, and I want to rest in that. And Lord, it would produce in us joy and peace and thankfulness and, and zeal for your glory and for your gospel pray, Lord, that we would be a church marked both by humility and boldness, that we would speak the truth and we would speak it in love for your kingdom's sake, for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.